I hate that thing already. <laughs> Have I got to turn it? Oh. Um, there's a play I wish I'd written um, called History Boys. Um, he's a wonderful writer, that man. Wonderful writer. There's a character, the, the history teacher in the, in the play, who says something which um, is so important um, and is evident really from all, every speaker that's been before. And that is that we are all here, whether we are writers or parents or grandparents, to pass it on. And that's it. To pass on what we care about and what we've gleaned from life ourselves. I happen to do that with uh, young people. This is because um, of my life. I was a child once. That's a, that's a big help if you're writing for them. Um, and I have to tell you something of why I write what I write. Um, because it, it depends so much on who I was when I was little. Um, I was a war baby. I was born in 1943. And so grew up just um, post-war, no knowledge or understanding of the war at all, but played in bomb sites, saw legless soldiers sitting on streets with their medals and a dog, and there was rationing and there was fog and all those cliches we know about but actually were true, and the world was grim, and the people were grim. We didn't, children think it was grim. It was just normal. But the parents had been through trauma, the friends, family, they'd all been through trauma. And as a child growing up, your first, your first taste, really, of how this world was was a view of the damage of war, the bomb sites we played in, the visitor who came, which he did once every six months, and I dreaded it because he had been shot down or crashed, I never found out which, in his plane, and he'd been really badly burnt on the side of his face and his fingers. And when, I, um, when he came for tea, my mother would always say, Michael, Last time Eric came, you did what I told you not to do. You stared at him. Don't do it this time. And so what I did, I had a kind of a, a way of getting around it. I would look at his watch chain and fix my eyes on his watch and his watch chain so that I didn't look at his face. But bit by bit, my eyes traveled up the watch chain, and sooner or later I was just looking at this scarred face and the eye that was hardly there and the fingers that were missing. So what was I? I was six, I was seven, and this was evidence, flesh evidence, of what war did to people. I didn't know anything much about it after that, except that I had two uncles. One who was killed in the RAF, my uncle Peter, when he was 21. He was an actor at Stratford, joined up, and was killed almost immediately. And his brother, my uncle Francis, Francis Camouts, who was a pacifist, and he went away to dig potatoes in Lincolnshire, because that's where you were sent if you were a pacifist. So in my family, I had this strand, those who went to war and those who didn't. My uncle Francis actually, after a time, decided 
that he had to go after his brother had been killed. And he went and joined the Special Operations Executive and did extraordinarily courageous things. So I had these models in my head of courage, which is why at one, one point I joined the army myself. I was, in a way, testing myself. And I just remember on exercise when I was at Sandhurst, and it was snowy. It was 1963, and we were out in trenches, and we were playing war games. The trouble was that the people we were playing war games against were from a regiment called the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, who mostly came from Glasgow. And these people hated one species, and that was officer cadets, <laughs> English officer cadets. And there we were in our trenches, and they were shouting what they would do to us if they caught us. And I remember thinking then, what, what am I doing here? This is terrifying. And it was pretend, for goodness sake. And it was snowing, and I looked up over the trench. And there wasn't, it wasn't St. Paul on the road to Damascus, but it was a moment that made me rethink my entire existence. So I looked and I saw this snow, and it took me back, of course, to the Christmas truce of 1914, when, as we know, the Germans, first of all, then us, and then the Belgians and the French, they got out of their trenches and they met in the middle, and they exchanged gifts, they played football. The score, by the way, um, was 2-1 to Germany. <laughs> Nothing has changed. And I, at that particular moment, I kind of made up my mind I was in the wrong, wrong game, and that it was peace I was after, not war. Gradually, gradually, I developed this, not as a writer, but as a human being, because I, I ended up teaching in a primary school, telling kids stories from three o'clock to half past three every afternoon, which is the best way you can possibly end a school day. You don't ask them questions afterwards, by the way, you just tell them a story. And I was enjoying it. I was, but what I found was that the more I told about what I cared about, what really mattered to me, the more they listened. If I played games with story, well, other, actually other writers, they'd heard, had done that really, really well, fantasy or whatever. But when I was speaking to them, when I was talking to them, I told them about true things, about my life, about my memory, and sometimes I made up stories that were set in the times when I was a child. But because I told it in exactly the same way that my mother had read to me sitting on my bed, because she loved the story and she was passing it on. She loved the poem and she was passing it on. I did the same with these children. And I saw that it meant something to them, which was not just story time at the end of the school day. There was a silence, a total silence. And 36 children, year six is silent. That is an achievement, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I loved those moments. It was the best time I ever had in the classroom. So when I, when I started writing, I knew that I had to, in a way, be true to myself. Don't just write stories which you think they'll like. Write stories that mean something to you. That's the first, the first requirement. And so many of the stories were about that memory growing up as a, as a war child, as a post-war child. And then you meet people. People tell you the most extra. All the stories I write have truth at their heart, every single one of them. So Warhorse, which I promised myself I wouldn't mention, was um, because I met a man in a pub in my village 
who had been to the First World War. Well, I'd read Sassoon, I'd read Owen, I'd read the history books, I'd seen, oh, what a lovely war. I'd seen Journey's End, I'd seen Orthon. Here I was, sitting in front of the fire with a man who'd been there. And what he said to me, in the way that he spoke, the simplicity of it, the directness of it, touched me beyond anything I'd ever read before. And I knew, as he was telling me, he was passing that story on to me. I don't think he was doing it consciously, but he was telling this young bloke what mattered to him, what he cared about. And then he took me home and he showed me photographs of his pals and he, he showed me his trenching tool and that sort of thing. And I, I swore then that I would have to tell this story and he told me he'd been to the First World War with horses. So tell a story, I thought, not about the German side or the French side or the British side, tell it from a horse's point of view. So it came from, from that, a true story that someone cared about and passed on to me. I went to a museum in Ypres called In Flanders Field, some of you may have been there, and I saw on the wall a letter written by the army, an official letter to uh, a mother in Salford saying, we regret to inform you that your son, Private So-and-so, was shot at dawn for cowardice on such and such a date, 1916, signed Lieutenant So-and-so. And the extraordinary thing was that the envelope was there. And you could see the rip. And so you, it took you right back to that moment when the woman had stood on her front doorstep and opened this letter that changed, changed her life and her family's life forever. And time and again that's happened, and it's, it's what children do. Children have memories. I'm going to hold up something now which is not a memory of mine. This is a memory of my wife's, who's here this evening. She should probably argue about this afterwards, but it's true. <laughs> when she was seven, she got chicken pox. And in those days when you got chicken pox, you got sort of put away somewhere down the end of the house. And she got put away in this room at the end of the house for a week. And there was nothing to do except look in bits of furniture in the guest room. And she was looking in a chest of drawers. And there were lots of her daddy's socks there. And she came across this. It's a medal. She was seven. She, it's in German. It, she couldn't read the letters. And anyway, the letters weren't interesting. What there was was a picture on one side, and I wish you could see it, of a sinking ship. And on the deck of it, there are clearly guns and shells. And on the other side, and this is why she never forgot it, there are people queuing up to buy a ticket, clearly to get on this ship, and the person selling them the ticket is a skeleton. And on the top, which she couldn't read, of course, it says Lusitania. And there was with it, and I know this because she was very lucky, she married me, and um, when she married me, the chest of drawers came to our home, and we discovered this, and it says, a German naval victory. With joyful pride, we contemplate this latest deed of our navy. And then there's an entire piece. This medal has been struck in Germany with the object of keeping alive in German hearts the recollection of the glorious achievement of the German Navy in deliberately destroying an unarmed passenger ship together with 1,198 non-combatants, men, women, and children. So the Lusitania sank off Southern Ireland, 1915. Uh, but here's the thing. 
we were warned. The people who got on that ship had been told by the Germans who put a, an advertisement in a newspaper, several newspapers in New York, don't get on the ship. Um, it's carrying arms and ammunition. Therefore, it's a ship of war. Therefore, it's a legitimate target for our submarines. Well, people got on it. They thought it was propaganda, and it was sunk. Everyone protested like mad. The British protested. The world protested. German barbarity again. And in many ways, it was. There were civilians on that ship. That's what they were. But the British denied there were any weapons, any weapons. And in 1980-something, divers went down, and they found millions of rounds of ammunition and rifles. So the point of that, I suppose, for me is this, that when you're telling stories, it doesn't matter whether they're for younger people or older people, you tell them straight, and this is a complicated thing. There is propaganda, there's truth, and there's half-truth, and there's false truth, and all that must come through as well. At the time, soldiers were shot in the First World War for cowardice or desertion. No one no one mentioned the fact that some of the trials were less than 20 minutes long for a man's life. This came, came out later. And then when you come to World War II, what do you do about World War II? It's, it's still more in the ether. Our Europe of today, supposedly united, has grown out of the ashes of that war. That's why it matters to children today, and it's very important that we don't hide. When I was little, parents could put their arms around you and protect you from the real world out there, whether it was domestic difficulty or social difficulty or international threats. You knew nothing about that at all. You played out, climbed trees, and listened to listen with mother. Nowadays, they have access to everything, everything. So your books, it seems to me, have to reflect the complexity of the world, the truths and the half-truths. So for instance, what do you do about the Holocaust? Do you simply wait till they're in their 20s and they can think about these things? No. Children died in those camps. Actually, the first person they ever know died in those camps as a child, Anne Frank. And what do they see on their televisions? Every night at the moment, they see Syrian children suffering, marching along dusty highways to who knows what. It's important that they know the depths of depravity and evil without thrusting it down their throats, without making it traumatic. I wrote a book called The Mozart Question. Um, after a trip to Venice, walking over a bridge in Venice one night, there was a musician playing, and it was a beautiful night. We'd just been to a, a concert. This music was heavenly, and as we we watched, we saw that the only person listening to this music was a little boy in his pajamas, sitting on his bike, and he had his chin resting like that, and he was just staring at this musician. And he was captivated, and you knew that was a life-changing moment. James mentioned this earlier on, this moment when you can be caught by something, and this child was, and we witnessed this moment. And the very next day, by accident, we ended up in the ghetto, in Venice. So I came from this sublime moment of intense beauty and calm to the shadows and of what had happened in, in, in that place all those years ago. And you can't avoid Hiroshima. You cannot. This happened. We still have a nuclear deterrent. 
We are still prepared to do that sort of thing, apparently. And it was done, and it was done to the Japanese. So within a story called Kensuke's Kingdom, I don't flinch from it. I have it told by a Japanese soldier who, um, and there really was such a man, who found himself on an island in the Pacific for 27 years. Um, Robinson Crusoe did four. And anyway, this man was found and went back home. And in my story, he tells the story of the reason he stayed on the island, which is because he heard over the radio that Hiroshima had been bombed. And his mother lived in Hiroshima, his family were in Hiroshima. He had nothing to go back for. So it's this kind of intense importance for young people now to know the world. I was once approached by a girl in Amman in Jordan, a teenager. We'd just done a talk in the library. And she put up her hand and she said, um, Sir, um, you write lots and lots of stories about old wars. I've got to shut up. Is it two minutes to go? Um, Um, you've written lots and lots of stories, she said, about old wars. Why do you not address yourself to the wars of today? She's Palestinian. And she said, why don't you tell our story? And it made me think how if you distance yourself from a war, you can be nostalgic in some way about it. It's over, it's done, we know the result. We know the history afterwards, but this is going on now, and for these people, they were living it. So tell it, and tell it to other children. So I did, I wrote a book called The Kites Are Flying, about a journalist who visits um, the West Bank and Israel, and tells the story of children on either side flying kites over the water, make a peace, make an understanding. They write things on their kites. I know it's idealistic. It's probably ridiculous, but it's the hope we all have for it. So I wrote this story, and I went there, and I talked to Palestinian children, and I talked to Israeli children, and that informed me more. And I wrote later on a story about refugees, Afghan refugees, a family fleeing back to this country um, during the Afghan war, when there were British soldiers there. I won't go on about it because I haven't got time, but I will. Can I finish doing one thing? Can I or not? I want, to, I want to sing you a song. The doors have been locked. Um, the thing is, do you remember I said to begin with, my rambling stuff, that we're here to pass it on, what we love, what we care about. And I've heard so much of that this evening from these other people. It's been wonderfully inspirational to sit there and listen to what it is that motivates people to create what they do. I've been very lucky in that they made a play of um, a book of mine called War Horse, quite a decent play. And um, the, the song in it that I love most, um, I was, thought I'd finish by singing it to you. Um, if you um, have seen the show and care to join in at a certain moment, that is allowed. Um, I'll do my best, I've got a slightly sore throat, but I, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person who sings in the bath, so it'll be all right. It's called Only Remembered. It was written by a wonderful folk singer. Well, it's an old hymn, but it was adapted by a wonderful folk singer called John Tams. And here, here's how it goes. 
fading away like the stars in the morning, losing their light in the glorious sun. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only the truth that in life we have spoken, only the seed that in life we have sown, these shall pass onwards when we are forgotten, only remembered for what we have done, only remembered only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. These shall pass onwards when we are forgotten, only remembered for what we have done. Who'll sing the anthem and who will tell the story Will the line hold? Will it scatter and run? Shall we at last be united in glory? Only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Shall we at last be united in glory? Only remembered for what we have done.